Uh, I am legitimately disappointed to tell you that this is the last week of the parable series. Um, because it's not, and y'all know that there's like over 40 parables. We've done six. <laughs> we haven't even done prodigal son. Come on, that's like, why didn't we do prodigal son? <laughs> uh, the, the wheat and the tares, that's one I wanted to do. Didn't get to it. You know, so it, there, there's so much more. Uh, I do hope that, that what we've talked through, even the framework of this, that as you read and encounter these parables, that, that it does kind of help you navigate some of these um, in your, your own studies. Um, but what I want to finish with is, is Matthew 5, 13 through 16. It's probably well known to many of you. It's, it's a short passage. And uh, hear, hear the words, hear the story before you even begin to think through what this might mean and how you've understood this before. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That's it. Simple, short, you can get the feel for it without realizing how deep it hits. I think it's so good because of that, because you can meditate on this and, and realize all kinds of things, but if you just read it as this one portion, you know, it, it's going to be the standalone, and it flows into the Sermon on the Mount, which is what this is coming out of. But before we, we get into the context of this thing at all, I, I just wanted to point this out to you. Who is the you in this, and when was this spoken? right? In a lot of ways, I think whenever you think about you are the light of this, this world, you are the salt of the earth, it, this feels appropriate to me for Jesus to speak to a small group of followers at the end of his ministry after they've been through some stuff, they've seen some things, they've proven their, their worthiness, and so we can look at these like three, four guys and be like, okay, you guys, you've got it. You're the light of the world. You're the salt, right? Like you, you, you passed the test. You, you, you've done what you need to do. This does not necessarily strike me as something that, that's good for a general audience at the beginning of Christ's ministry in Matthew 5. And that's exactly where we find it. That he goes on the Sermon on the Mount, he looks out to all these disciples gathered here, he gives the Beatitudes, right, where he's calling the, the poor and the lost and the persecuted. He is, he's speaking to all of them, he's blessing all those people, and then he follows it up by saying, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light. That's it. It's good final words before the ascension, but as an intro to the most famous sermon at the beginning of his ministry, it's a really powerful thing to be put here. You know, because what is the vetting process for those who he spoke to? Was there a, a personality test? You know, only the Enneagram 9s, you know, the Enneagram 1s, you know. What, whatever we might have been able to put before this, what, what was their understanding of Scripture? Did they understand the context of this? You know, what, what are their own giftings? What are their own manifestations? I feel like before we give accolades like what we might take from this, we want to put some gates on this. And it's so amazing to me that Christ declared this over a crowd not because he was trying to, to pull something out of them or, or, or change who they were. I think he was speaking of the power of the gospel that had already gripped them that they came to hear the word of the Lord. 
I believe he had such a confidence in who the Lord is that when he spoke to them, you are the salt of the earth. It had to be true because they were already there listening to the word itself. I think that whenever I hear you are, I, I want it myself to be personal. I want it to be something that's an accolade to myself, like a personal milestone. Like, I, you remember when you got that attaboy from Jesus? You know, like, you remember whenever he called me a, a nickname? He gave me the rock. You know, he, he gave me something that kind of set me apart from that. And we want to have this personal kind of, like, prerogative that's like, okay, yeah, maybe we're all this sort of thing, but he just said this to me, right? And we want to have this little thing that we, we hold personally. But the most powerful, the most beautiful, the most empowering, the most world-changing proclamation was given generally to a large audience of people who just showed up. That's the who. That's the you. And I think if, if we even look at, at who they were compared to even who we are, like if I say that this is to you, you might think, well, he, you know, this is to the, the church that's really got it together. This, this is for the, the, the church of, of, you know, several hundred where they have all these resources. This, this is for, for those, you know, full-time ministry things. And, and we want to keep downplaying who the you is on here. I'll tell you, I think that generally speaking, most people today's age have it more together than probably the people who Jesus spoke to in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? <laughs> We've seen a bit more stuff. We've heard a bit more things. That there, there's a little bit more that, that we could even bring to the table. So maybe that's going to be enough to make you say, well, who were they? They were the objects that Jesus looked in the eye when he said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light to this world. There's, um, there's a guy at, at work that I, I don't necessarily think represents the, the best and strongest um, among everything. And, uh, you know, I, I think we, we have this concern trying to protect our, our, our image. And so, like, every now and then I'll get a little side ping, like, hey, you know, we need to get somebody to represent ourselves on this call. You know, should I, who should I put on the call? I'm like, I'll, I'll give you a list. <laughs> you know, like, I want to try to prescribe and craft the image that we have because in all call, and I feel like this, this, might, this might end up being embarrassing. You know, like, like, like you, I want to make sure that people can articulate things well. I want to make sure that, that, that we put the best foot forward. I want to make sure that, that we know what we're doing. I don't believe Christ had that concern. When he is looking at the coming of the kingdom of God, he doesn't say, okay, okay, I'm going to give, you know, I'm going to bless the, the lost and the least, but I'm going to, like, kind of give my 12 disciples, like, a little leg up. I'm, I'm, I'm going to kind of make sure that they have the right clothes to wear so that they can go do this. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. And yet, I think we still expect that to be because it kind of comes naturally. And so whenever I say to you, you are the salt of the earth, do you believe that I'm really talking to you? Legitimately. Do you believe that you are the light that's really going to go out to this world to show them what it's really meant to look like? Or do you kind of think, I understand that, but that's really going to be done by somebody else? Because I think we just kind of just, just deflect that just enough that we don't feel that responsibility then, that we don't feel that, that need to kind of do it. We're like, generally speaking, the church will be kind of okay because this generic Christian of which we are, you know, kind of sequential to, we're kind of on the side of that. They'll take care of a lot of that stuff, but I'm going to just work on my own junk. I'm, I'm in this thing trying to just, 
I'm just trying to get to heaven. I'm just trying to, to not kill people. I'm trying to, to just get my kids to school. <laughs> Didn't think the cheer would come on that part. <laughs> right? Like that, that we think we're going to get through by the, the, the skin of our teeth, and that will be sufficient. When Christ, in the moment where he's making things the most clear, looks out to a ragtag, sorry bunch of people who couldn't read, couldn't write, who couldn't make the grade for a whole lot of these things, who he just said, blessed are you when people persecute you. Blessed are you, you know, that whenever you're mourning, all these things. And he goes, you, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light. You're the city on a hill. I put my words in your mouth. I put my image in your hands. I, you are an image bearer. Where you go, there I will be. What a crazy thing for our Lord and Savior to have done. And I, that it's completely antithetical to how we expect things to happen in America today, where we, we worry about image, where we worry about what we're bringing to the stage, where we worry about the, the posture, and, and we worry about the word and the choice, and, and whether we're prepared, and whether we're ready, and am I the right person, and all this sort of stuff that clouds this out. Christ takes the opposite stance. You are the image. You don't earn or prove your way into it. And all call to the blessing of God is sufficient because I believe he has such a knowledge of the strength of the word of God that the gospel will accomplish this. The gospel will accomplish this. I can say, you are the salt of the earth. And Christ is like, yeah, you are. He can say, you're the light. Yep, like it or not, you are the light. You are the best hope for the gospel to be heard. And I don't even think he's doing this as a game plan. I, I don't think that he's putting this together as like, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to try to stir their emotions. I'm going to try to just give them some confidence. I'm going to just kind of give them the, a, a long leash so they can run this out. No, he's like, this is, here we go. You're with me, so this is the way that this is going to happen. Because the gospel does this. Grace does this. When you are so marked by love and forgiveness and grace and mercy, of course you're going to go out and be loving and gracious and forgiving and merciful. That's just what the gospel does. So if you respond to this, if you are gathered here and you hear these words, here we go. You are the salt of the earth. So let's look at the elements here. I, I think that the people drill down to these things probably beyond their purview when we talk about salt. Um, you know, you, there's a lot of sermons I've heard about this where we talk about the chemical properties of salt and we talk about, you know, what you can do with that. I'm going to try to steer clear of some of that because I don't believe Christ had any chemistry in his mind when he was talked about you are the salt of the earth. When we say you are the salt of the earth today, we, we, we are using a phrase that's derived from this passage, right? We describe people as the salt of the earth. What do we mean? We mean that, oh, they're, they're good, they're wholesome people. You know, they're, they're kind of a, almost a, a low, not a high culture people. We say you're the salt of the earth. We, we think of that as like salty sailors maybe, you know, or, 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 or people who are just like hardworking individuals, almost never ourselves. We use it to s describe other people and not ourselves. We don't say, I'm a salt of the earth kind of guy. You know, like, like that. We say, I'm a meat and potatoes kind of guy. We, do, we, we don't say, I'm a salt of the earth kind of guy, because that actually does mean something that we almost don't put on ourselves. It makes a lot of sense when pastors do go into chemistry and history of this stuff, because it, it's a powerful symbol. You know, you talk about salt for flavor, salt for preservation, salt as wealth, salt for healing. 
I don't think that that helps because it's like gold or diamonds. If I say gold and diamonds, you, something comes to your mind immediately about wealth, right? And I, I don't have to tell you that, that gold is actually a very good conductor and how it's very useful for, for, for electronics. So that whenever we're talking about the gold coin in scripture, if you know how good of a conductor it was, it, no, 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 no. When we say gold, you know that it's talking about this precious metal that's worth a lot. Diamonds have that same sort of thing. It doesn't matter how hard they are. It, it's something that brings beauty to this. If I talk about breaking out a, a bottle of, of champagne, you think of wealth and probably uh, leisure and celebration. And so when we say salt in this passage, there's a cultural more than an academic understanding, I think, of what he was saying. And if we look at some of the scriptural applications we have here, Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be generous, seasoned with salt, so that you may know <laughs> that you ought to answer each person. I could, I could have made it smaller. I'll read them for you, though. Mark 9, 50, I included this one even though it's kind of similar to what we read here, right? Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Not how we think about salt. Have, have peace whenever you're salty with one another. Salty does not really work that way. Listen to this one, Leviticus 2.13. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With your offerings, you shall offer salt. You, you, God didn't want unseasoned offerings. <laughs> he prefers a little bit of salt with this. It, it's a very interesting, th this was a, a factor of the whole thing. So when he talks about you are the salt, all of this is much more relevant than knowing that it's NACL and that it's table salt and that if we iodize it, that you know, it, it can resist all these other things and all these other things about losing its saltiness. Numbers 18-19, I want to read this one. All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord I give to you, to your sons and daughters with you, as a perpetual due. It's a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. Just kind of thrown out there. It's just, it's so ingrained in the history of the sacrifices and the covenants and the promises and the people. Salt is a cultural thing. When we say gold or diamonds or champagne, salt was that. It, it brought more of that weight of, of a history, of, a, of an understanding of, of oh, th this is a big deal. It's not just the thing on the table in this little shaker. Salt had that oomph. It had that emphasis. And we talk about light. It's the visual portion of what we do. Uh, I hope if, if you've been in the vineyard for more than two weeks, <laughs> that there's a, a phrase that you can really start to dig into and to understand. And this is when we talk about Christ as the word worker. I, I don't think I repeat this enough to, to really say the two-week mark is, is where I'm at. But this is something that I, I hope that, that if you go on with your discipleship, if you ever go anywhere, that, that you understand that this is, I think, part of what we understand in the vineyard as a very, very powerful thing. Christ is the word worker. What we mean by that is he could speak the word, and he had the authority and ability to enact what he said. He didn't just say, blessed are the poor. He actually blessed the poor. He didn't just say, let the captives be free. He actually freed the captives. Like, it, it, he was the word worker. The, the things that he said were not just theology. They weren't just teachings. They were meant to be realized and practiced and, and something that happened. So when he said, be healed, they were healed. When he declares, you are forgiven, they were actually forgiven by God himself. He was the word worker. 
And I think so many times we, we diverge uh, between these two things, that we, we speak the words and we do the words, and we, we keep one in one camp and we keep one in the other camp, and we want, well, maybe after I hear enough stuff and learn enough stuff, I'll, then I'll, I'll start stepping into the, the doing stage, right? But first, I, I need to first get this big wealth of words. I, I, I first have to, to try to, to make sure I, I have enough in me so that when I go to try to do it, it'll be okay. That's not the model before us. The model that, that Christ is, is the word worker. You go forth and you do. You proclaim and you practice. It, it, y'all, it's, it's in our, 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 our church statement, right? <laughs> you, you see where this is coming from? Proclaiming and practicing. It, it, it matters to a lot because that's, that's what we're trying to do. We, with, Christ is the word worker, and it matters a lot. It warrants a call out, even if you've heard this a hundred times. Preach the gospel everywhere, and when necessary, use words very, very old. It goes back to the early days of the church. There's a lot of debate about who first said it because it's one of those things that kind of is rephrased in Old English, and then there's some things in Greek and Latin, all this stuff. We don't know who first said it, but it's such an old, important statement. There was an understanding from the early church that the gospel is not just theology. It's not just an understanding of enlightenment. It's not just a, a, a truth or an idea or a lifestyle. It's actually meant to be lived out. It, it, it has to show itself. It, it has to be manifest through, through something is different. Something has shifted. Something has changed. Preach the gospel everywhere. When necessary, use words. It's so beautiful because it implies you can be preaching the gospel by living your life. Letting your light shine before men that they may glorify God himself. At the uh, Vineyard Missions meeting, where we were just a little while ago, one of the teachings that really hit me was offered by our, our national director, uh, Jay Pathak. And he says this, that the gospel is at its core a gospel of proclamation. I like that. Our gospels are, are at its core a gospel of proclamation. It needs to be spoken out. Christ is the word of God. Christ is the word. Like, like, there's something about this. If we are silent, the rocks themselves will cry out. There, there's something in our gospel that is at its core a gospel of proclamation. You have to speak these things. You can't just think it. <laughs> you can't just agree with it. You can't just hold it in your heart, you know, until one day whenever you die and then think, like, this was, I, I carry this treasure with me always. No, it was meant to be shared. It was meant to be spoken. It was meant to be proclaimed. And I want to say, that, of course, includes the spoken word, but not just the spoken word. This is a, from a Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one that they've not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We have to go and tell them. We have to go and show them that as he was the word worker, so are we. We're, we're not just trying to, if, if, if communication were enough, well, the, 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 the World Wide Web probably took care of this for us. You can just make a YouTube video, post it, and say, I've proclaimed it to the nations. You know, hit send, done, check, great commission, complete. What, what more do we need to do? I, I've proclaimed this. But to go and to live among them, to go and to live and to show them, to go and live out a life of mercy and forgiveness and love whenever it actually hits home. Not as a, a theoretical thing, oh, you, you should forgive your enemies, but when there is an enemy there. Yeah. 
I think that the work that our church is doing right now between Ukraine and Russia, some of the most important work in the world right now. I really do. I, I, th th this is not me trying to be hyperbolic about this. I, I really believe what the world needs to see right now. We have churches in Russia <laughs> that I speak with who have people that are, are in danger of being conscripted to go to a war that they don't necessarily agree with. Some of them might. What an amazing thing for the kingdom of God to be positioned right where the world's eyes are. We have, we have pastors that we got to speak of in Ukraine who are suffering and wondering, where is the church? They're wondering, where is the power of God? They're wondering, where are the brothers and sisters in Russia who we used to talk to? How, how is this the plan? What are we supposed to do in light of this? The gospel is not like ignoring this, like, oh, this is a hard question. The gospel is for a time as this. The gospel is meant to be manifest when there's an enemy who seeks to kill and destroy. That's when the gospel comes to light. When you have something to forgive, whenever there's a wrong that's not justified, where you've been wronged and it's, and it's painful and it's terrible and horrible and evil rears its head. And we get to say, I am a person saved by grace. I am marked by mercy. I will love not just my neighbor as myself. I will pray for my enemies. Church, we are well positioned All right, I'm going to talk for a second about the innate properties of Christians. Did I close off your ears right then as soon as I said that? that I know it's kind of heady to say that the innate properties of Christians. I think, church, I, I know a lot of us do this, that we engage in this complex act of theologizing, right? We, we engage in this complex act of trying to discern things and, and planning outreaches, and, and we do all this stuff, and we, we pause, and we think, and we plan, and we, we try to follow a, a gameplay, and I, I, I know why, because it's wise to count the cost. It's wise to do these things, having reasoned what this is, and, and moving forward this, but the innate nature of light is to shine. It's going to shine. The innate nature of salt is saltiness. Like, that's what it is. You can't stop light from shining. You, you, you can't stop salt from being salty, right? This is like just what it does. This parable is a call to be. I think what I, what I find so striking is it's not to be in the sense that we often think it is, like, I need to put on the armor of God. Like, I, I need to try to do this thing. Like, like okay, he's calling me to, to be discipled, so I, I need to take training. I need, I need to take this time and, and try to shore up myself and make sure I've got the defenses and make sure I, I know how to do this, you know, knowing the word of God and all these things which are really good. This call to be is not to do X, Y, and Z. We are the light of the world. We can argue about this. We can try to hide it. You can try to deny it. But as a Christ follower, you are. This is the game plan. That This is who we are by our very nature. When we listen to the words of God, we've been exposed to something of the gospel. If you're in this room right now, here's the good news. Christ died for you. <laughs> what are you going to do about it? <laughs> you are now the salt. You are now the light. Th this is it. Knowing this, knowing that you've been forgiven, that your worst day does not define you, but God's mercy and grace defines you. Knowing that God's power is here for you to have a different life than what the world might prescribe. What are you going to do about it? That's the responsibility we have 
from this proclamation. Plutarch says uh, this, what we achieve inwardly will change outer reality. It's pretty good. I kind of like the Parks and Rec version. I bring this one up very regularly. Leslie Nope says, that's not really the attitude I expect from an award winner. And Ron Swanson says, everything I do is the attitude of an award winner because I've won an award. I like to tell my kids, every joke I tell is a dad joke because I'm a dad. You know, <laughs> It's this innate nature of, of who we are that you can't help but be anything else. When we've been transformed inwardly, well, of course it has to come out. If you haven't, if you haven't been transformed, nothing's different. Leah's old, old pastor said this, and it I, I comes up very regularly here. The best, uh, what, what, help me with it again, the, the, best, the best evidence, evidence is a changed life. I want to say it again so it's on the recording. The best evidence of a changed life is a changed life. You don't have to try to prove it. You don't have to try to justify it. You don't have to try to defend it. Because it is. Right? That's the power of the gospel. And I think that, that we, we miss what it is. We miss the fact that we've been transformed. We miss the fact that we've been changed because we're looking for all these other things. We're looking for evidence outside the fact that Christ said, you are salt and you are light. This parable doesn't give us an in-depth theological analysis of who we are, which is troubling, <laughs> right? All right, you're, you're salt. Help me understand that. T- tell, tell me what that means to be salty. You know, you're, you're light. Okay. Now, now, really help me. You know, particle wave duality of light. Like, help, help me understand how are we going to do this, Christ? It doesn't go into any of that because Christ is not overly concerned with those things. That's not the intent of this parable. This parable can be read as very worked focused. I mean, he calls out works that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I mean, he just like kind of threw that in there. And all of a sudden we're thinking faith versus works. And oh, he's leaning into the works camp. He's, he's kind of like James and he's got all this kind of thing with all that. We have this nasty habit, particularly in this day and age, of, of taking a scientific principle or a theological principle or a, or a psychological profile and, and applying it everywhere that we possibly can. So if our problem solving in life is that we break a problem into smaller problems and try to solve those smaller problems, we often approach everything in that way. We, we've learned a trick. It works fairly well, and I'm, I, I know how to do this. If a bear is attacking you, you don't try to break down that problem into smaller <laughs> problems. You get away from the bear. Though, arguably, if you break the bear down into smaller problems. <laughs> sorry, that, that might have been a little bit of a dark joke. <laughs> I'm glad that one didn't get on the recording. So... The thing is, church, we love universal truths. We love things that we can apply universally. We, we love that this, this feeling of strength and security that, that what I learn here, I can apply everywhere, right? And, and you know, we, if you learn that, that money solves problems, then you come to the kingdom of God. Guess what? Money doesn't solve every problem. If, if you learn the, like, like the, the opposite, if you learn that, that just being nice is enough, then you meet a person who, who doesn't like nice people. They exist. <laughs> How does this work? You know, what are we going to do for this? Context matters. One of the most scandalous and yet life-giving revelations is that we do ministry in context. 
So in humility, let me ask you, if you approach all problems the same way, how do you approach problems at work? How do you approach problems in your marriage? How do you learn new technology? How do you approach your daily to-do list? All right? And now, how do you approach your discipleship? Is it the same way? Right? We often don't come to the kingdom of God to let the king teach us and instruct us and lead us in there. We approach it like another problem that we encounter in this world. Oh, I need to learn all about it. I, I need to get all the facts and figures. I, 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 need to, I need to copy a guy who's been doing this longer, right? And we, we approach these things in the same way. When I think the king standing before a, a, a ragtag bunch of, of people who can't read or write looks out at them, sees the image of God and says, you are the salt of the earth with full confidence that they are the salt of the earth, that they bear the image of God. That's the approach of discipleship in the kingdom. Come in, we're going to do this together. Here we go. Do we approach discipleship as if we're trying to grow a business? Do we approach discipleship like we're trying to learn a new skill? We break these issues down, faith and works, doing and being. Okay, let me look at salt. Let me look at light. Let me try to work this thing out. We like to paint James as the work guy and Paul as the faith guy. And we say it's faith versus works. And then there's this big revelation. Where we say, oh no, they're the same thing, faith and works. And we feel so happy about that. And that's true. But I love dogs and little kids for many reasons. But one is the absolute purity that they express themselves. If you've ever heard a toddler belly laugh, I don't know that there's a purer sound. They're just in the moment of joy. You can listen to Charlie. <laughs> it just comes out. A dog wants your food. That's all it wants. <laughs> there, there's no second thing. It's just the purity of this moment and this expression, this innate nature to who they are. And then as they get older, they second guess a little bit. In some ways, I think that the dastardly work of preaching is revealing things. Because once you've seen something, you can't rewind to the point before. Once you've been given a thought and insight, you can't pretend that it's not there. Right? If, if I spoil the Marvel movies for you with understanding how the, the last movie ends, you can't go into that movie and ignore the fact that you know how it's going to end. Right? Spoilers spoil. Being light, that's what it does. It reveals things. It changes the perspective of things by its very nature. Once we've seen the goodness of God, once you've been exposed to the grace and forgiveness, you're now accountable for that. Like you can't go back to before you knew the gospel. You can't go back and act like you don't know that God loves you so much that he sent his son to die on a cross to forgive your sins. That truth is now in your hands. That's the statement. That's the word of God. That's what was spoken. What are you going to do about it? Christ didn't articulate the difference between faith and works. And when we think about the full revelation of Scripture, this is how I think about it. Like, like Paul and James are really great. They help me with my thoughts, my approach, a, a lot of practicality. But they, they, they lead me to that divide of faith versus works and trying to focus on one or the other. Christ sweeps that distinction away. 
you know? He's just like, yeah, you're light. <laughs> so let your, 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 your deeds shine before man so that they can glorify God because that's who you are. Well, is that because I believe or is that because I'm doing? <laughs> you're light. What more do you want him to say? <laughs> He's not going to subdivide this problem and try to tackle one side of you and then the other side of you. You are light. In humility, I think we have to understand that the criticism, actually, of Mahatma Gandhi against the church. I like your Christ. Do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. I believe we're accountable for this. Have we subdivided and argued amongst ourselves? Have we made this about something else? It, does he see the good works of Christians and glorify God? He sees the good works of Christ. <laughs> Are we salt and light? Have we lost our saltiness? Losing saltiness is the, the fear. And like I said, some people take this very literally in here, then forget that we're dealing with parables, and it's this innate property of salt. I just spent a whole time convincing you that this was the innate property of salt, and now I'm telling you, but what about losing your innate nature? The, the point of this parable, it, it underscores you, you can lose your saltiness. There is a danger to losing our saltiness. If it's innate, how does that happen? The concern of the parable isn't how. It's not talking about salt getting diluted. It's not talking about chemical reactions to pull across the, uh, the, the sodium and the chlorine molecules. Because any time you read that into this, you're going beyond what, the, the, what Christ intended. But I think you can make a very good point that, that the Sermon on the Mount kind of spells this out for you. You can see how salt remains salty throughout this. It'd be an interesting thing if this parable instead picked an attribute of salt. What if, what if salt lost its color? What if salt lost it, its, its form? But that's not it. What if salt loses its saltiness? It's nonsensical. What if a rock loses its hardness? Well, then it wouldn't be a rock, right? What if space lost its vastness? What if, stay with me on this one, a human lost his humanity. What if a disciple lost his way? Identity matters so very much. And so many of us don't know who we are. We don't really know who we are. We copy and we mimic and we find our way into a society trying to express something that's kind of in my soul, but it, it's not a real fit. Like, I'm an IT guy, but let me tell you, I'm not an IT guy. <laughs> you know, I remember there was one time I was in a church, and they, they, they divided us up into, like, the technical people, the people who, like, had an engineering state of mind, and, and the artists. And I literally went and stood in the middle. Because <laughs> I was like, I, I want to write songs. I want to write poetry. I want to write books. I work in tech, and, I, and this is how I use my mind. Like, I, I don't fit in one or the other of these things, and, and yet we want to sort that out. We don't know who we are most of the time. And I feel like a lot of people, even into adulthood, kids, you can hear me on this, fumble their way around, trying to find something that kind of fits and kind of expresses me, but never quite seems to satisfy. There's a clarification of identity here. Jesus tells us who we are, and if we lose that, what is left? Church, if you find yourselves acting unlike how you used to, how you want to, if you find yourselves doing things that you never said you would, if you forget about the things that, that gave you joy, that, that defined you, 
we can lose our way. We talk about how people lose themselves in their work. I think that's the description of salt losing its saltiness. On the one hand, this parable, this warning feels like utility because what we're trying to say is like, well, you know, you're only good if you can do this stuff, right? You're, you're, this, if, you, if you lose your way, then it's just meant to be thrown out on the side and trampled underfoot of men. But now on reflection, both of these references really work together because you can eat food without salt, right? And you can muck around in the dark and try to find your way. But light gives beauty. Do you know how many photos I saw of sunsets after the hurricane came through? Amazing sunsets, amazing clouds just lit up, came after the storm. What is art without light? How can we recognize beauty in the dark? There's an interesting thing that happens in the Greek. Loses its saltiness is one word, and it doesn't mean lose its saltiness. <laughs> it actually means becoming foolish. What if salt becomes foolish? Just to put it into in context, here's some other scriptures that, that use that same exact losing its saltiness word. This is Romans 122 is where it says this. So I'm going to read a little bit more. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, became salty, lost their saltiness. I'm sorry, not became salty. They lost their saltiness and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human, being in birds and mammals and reptiles. They became fools. That foolishness is losing their saltiness. 1 Corinthians 1.20 Where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? They lost their saltiness. It happens. So why did Jesus tell us this? I, I wanted to end with this parable, these parables, I can say, because what I think it does so beautifully is it connects word and action. You know, we're going to be talking about the fruit of the Spirit in the next ones, in the next sermons that are, that are coming up. This idea of, of who we are. There, there's so much wonderful stuff about the, the activity of the Holy Spirit that I want to get into for the church, but I feel the Lord is like really doubling down for us about our character, who we are. I, I feel like he, he wants us to be assured of that and to let these things happen because if we are trying to put on something that doesn't fit us, if we're trying to, to play a role, it's going to be transparent. People will see through that. I believe we are called. This day and age, what's, what's coming before us is unlike everything before. And I feel like pastors always say that. <laughs> but I think if you told me that three years ago about the pandemic coming, about the war in Ukraine, about whatever, you, you just can't imagine those things. Technology is changing the world so fast. Who are we? So that no matter what comes, we can be who we're meant to be. You can give me any tool, you can give me any technology, you can give me any news, you can give me any circumstance, and I will remain salt and light. It matters, and I think the Lord is calling us to be who he's made us to be, assuredly, for our own sake, so we don't lose ourselves in work, we don't lose ourselves in debate, we don't lose ourselves in governance, we don't lose ourselves by nation lines. We can be who we are because he is our king. 
So many of us struggle with who we are. The disciples then, this is from Bonhoeffer, must not only think of heaven, they have an earthly task as well. Now that they are bound exclusively to Jesus, they are told to look at the earth whose salt they are. It's to be noted that Jesus calls not himself, but his disciples the salt of the earth. He entrusts his work on earth to them. The call of Jesus makes the disciple community not only the salt, but also the light of the world. Their activity is visible as well as imperceptible. Ye are the light. It's the property of light to shine. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. It can be seen for miles away, whether it's fortified burg, a stronghold, or a tottering ruin. This city set on the hill is the disciple community. But this is not to say that the disciples have now to make their first decision. The only necessary decision has already been taken. Now they must be what they really are. Otherwise, they are not followers of Jesus. The followers are a visible community, their discipleship visible in action, which lifts them out of the world. Otherwise, it would not be discipleship. And of course, the following is as visible to the world as a light in the darkness or a mountain rising from a plain. I just want you to be who you are. I just want you to really be who you are, not who you think you should be, and to not wait for a day when you feel like you can maybe do it. To be who you are, who God made you to be, and have the confidence in that spoken word over you that you can do that with confidence and not trying to, 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 to back down and not trying to, to be somebody else and not trying to act a certain way and, and to put on all these other things, to be who the Lord has made you to be. Here's my final thought for us. A lot of us have become Christians for ourselves. You thought that was why you came forward and prayed the sinner's prayer for your eternal destiny. <laughs> you thought you came forward because I want to make sure that I go to heaven when I die. A lot of us came into the kingdom that way. We didn't do it for the world. We didn't do it for God and his kingdom. Being salt is not enough. You don't sit down for breakfast and have a big old bowl of salt. I think Ava would try. <laughs> Ava, Ava is our, our cardiac arrest waiting to happen. She loves salt. But we think it should, should be sugar. We want Christianity to be sugar. Palatable. You could eat a bowl of sugar. <laughs> I think Ava might have done that too. <laughs> we want to be sugar. Palatable. Pleasing. Nice. Oswald Chambers criticizes that view. He says that those who think that gentleness and winsomeness without curativeness is the ideal of Christianity. Salt by itself isn't the point. Salt on something. Light by itself just goes into the vastness of space and disappears. It has to bounce off of something. We are in this world for a reason. Christians are Christians for those outside of Christianity. We think we're the church to be the church. No. And then we build our walls and we think, okay, we're done. No. We are salt and light because we need to salt the world, because we need to light up the world. We have tried to make this about ourselves. We think we come into the church to be better Christians. No, it's to save the world. 
It's to brighten up the world. It's to make it a better place. It's so that justice can reign like a, like a river. It's so that we can actually see righteousness displayed before man. It's so that when they see, they glorify God whether they know it or not. That they see some goodness and they're like, I didn't know it could be that good. I didn't know humanity wasn't greedy. How can you actually love your enemy? How can it be that the Russians are invading your country and shooting your brothers and sisters and you say, God bless them? And it feels almost sacrilegious that you could be a person that's a light in the darkness, that we don't mimic the darkness, thinking somehow if I can just tweak it a little bit. We exist for the world. Or why are we even here? Quite literally, it makes no logical sense. Just take me to heaven now. We exist for those who have not yet heard, for those who have not yet seen, for those who have not yet experienced the goodness of God, that they can see this and be a part of it. It matters, church, what we do. Because how else? We exist for those who Jesus isn't talking to here. And that's perhaps the only takeaway I want you to take. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. Town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, Church, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's pray.